it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your consciences. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it's for the sake of God. If we're in our mind, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And here's what that ministry was, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Not counting men's sins against them. And he has com committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father. A simple prayer, what we do not know, teach us, what we do not have, give us, and what we are not, make us by grace and belief and faith in your word, for you are ever faithful, in your name we pray, amen. Uh, in, in his book, some of you may have read it, some of you may not, many of you have had, heard references to it. In his book, uh, uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death, Neil Postman, a writer for, uh, who's now dead, but a, a writer uh, in, in the past, for the, uh, uh, I think it was the, the Washington Post, uh, said that there are three requirements if you're going to be a successful uh, television preacher. Obviously, we're not on television, but I think it applies. Uh, the first was that, that uh, you could have no prerequisites. No one ever had to know anything before they came in. Uh, the second was that you would induce no perplexity. And the third was to avoid exposition like the plagues of Egypt. I, I'm disqualified on all three. And I proudly say that, not proudly for myself, but I believe that uh, prerequisites are required. We, we have to know something. We have to know something before we begin the study of God's Word. We have to know uh, uh, who God is, what He, what he intends uh, in, in His interactions with His people. Uh, the perplexity, I hope, will come. Because perplexity is, uh, is what moves us to change. Okay? And as far as exposition is concerned, that's how I teach. You will not be required to raise your hands. You will not be required to answer any questions. I won't even ask you any. Okay? Uh, my part is to speak. Your part is to listen. If uh, you finish before I do, we'll deal with that later. Um, in, in previous... Uh, opportunities uh, to teach from this passage, <laughs> which I dearly love. Uh, th there were some questions raised. Um, there, are th there are basically 
this is dealing with people and it can deal with people very effectively who are in two categories or basically fall into two positions. There are those who struggle and there are those who drift. And I said that uh, this was, would have been back in de- December around the 31st of last year. And that's why I say this is prerequisite. I'm going to run through this very quickly. The strugglers are individuals who are working hard in an uphill pursuit by some external regulatory code. To be a, to, they believe the Christian life is something they must do on their own. And so they come into a place like this and they're exhorted to do this and do that and be this and be that. And they say, I have to find a way to do this and be this on my own, in my own power. There are then the drifters. These are, these are the, maybe the sadder folks. They're indifferent or rebellious. Uh, they are rebellious to the word of God. They don't like to hear it proclaimed. They especially don't like to hear it proclaimed forcibly. Uh, so <clears throat> they, they would much rather just have dialogue about it and not have to actually dialogue with it. And it makes them feel very much, very much more interactive uh, when, when, when they're having discussions about it. It allows them to determine what parts of Scripture they will listen to, what parts they'll throw out. If these two categories do exist, and if you especially if you fall into one of those two categories, what in the world do, do we have as Christians to offer people like this? What would we say to them? With, if one group is saying, I do, didn't know I should live this way, and if another is saying, I didn't know that I could live this way, what do we have to say to them? And that word is the word that ran through many of these songs that we, that we, we uh, just sang. It is the third word in the focus passage in chapter 2 of Titus in verse 11, which reads, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. That's verse through verse 14. The third verse of Third word of chapter, verse 11 of chapter 2 is grace. How may we live this life? By grace. Why should we live this life? By grace. Out of, into marvelous light I'm running. Out of darkness and out of shame. By grace. It is grace that transforms. It is grace that liberates. It is grace that we will look at today as we begin to study uh, the prerequisites, here they come. Uh, there were four things that, that, this, that this passage illustrates to us. The salvation grace provides, the instruction grace conveys, the anticipation grace creates, the transformation grace performs. If you don't have a pen in your hand, that's fine. But uh, I realize these things are, are not things that you'll necessarily remember, so I'll send them out to you all uh, in the mail out this week. Uh, those four things, it provides Salvation, instruction, anticipation, and transformation. A quick recap. The salvation grace provides for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. We generated, I believe, the last time that I spoke about this, a working definition of grace. You may have one of your own. This is mine. Grace is the undeserved love of God to men revealed in Christ or God's active favor, bestowing His greatest gift on those who deserve His greatest punishment. That's what grace is. We must not confuse the words, and I spoke about this the last time I spoke on this, that we must not confuse the words grace and mercy because they are not the same thing. 
Although we like to use them synonymously, synonymously and think of them synonymously in lots of instances. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting something we don't deserve. Okay? And that's what we're talking about this morning. Grace. Getting what we do not deserve. How has God's grace appeared? This passage says it has appeared to all men. Uh, we've studied that word many times and studied this type of phrase many times in the, in the, in the Word of God. When the Word says all, it's actually talking about all types or all kinds. When it talks about all nations in the, in the book of Revelation several times, uh, this is the same inference. The inference here is, is not necessarily all men. We're not universalist. Okay? God has appeared to all types and all kinds of men to every corner of the world. He has appeared in His Son, Jesus Christ. The word appeared here is the word epiphania in the Greek. If you don't remember that, I said that before. And it's the word where we get epiphany, where we talk about a lot of... of we use that word quite often at Christmas time. Okay? And it's the appearing, the appearing in the person of Jesus Christ. In John's prologue, in the beginning of, of the book of John... Uh, which some of us are familiar with to some degree. In verse 15, he's speaking uh, of John the Baptist, and John testifies concerning him, it says. He cries out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of grace we have received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the person of grace. He is the act of God's grace toward us. He is what we did not deserve. All the blessings that we enjoy in Christian living can be traced back to the source, and that is God's grace in God's Son. If that's how the grace appeared, then why has this grace appeared? This was perplexing and remains perplexing to many of us. Uh, I'm going to suppose two reasons why God's grace appeared. Uh, one preeminent to the other. I'll talk about the preeminent one first. It is because of God's eternal purpose. In Ephesians 1, 1 through 14, Paul states most elegantly, and Mr. Steve Roberts has expounded most thoroughly this foremost truth. Okay? We have heard it. Over and over and over again. If you sat here, been here, spent time here, talked to any one of us as elders, and many, many of the rest of you, as you've spoken to one another, you've heard this over and over again. God's grace appeared because it was God's plan. And God's purpose, His eternal purpose, to show grace to us. Not because we deserved it, not because we were special. Uh, I love that phrase, I think it was in the song we just read, not because I'm lovely, lovable, not because I'm lovable, but because He's love. Not because there was anything worthy in me, but because God is who He is in God. As, as I spoke to a person this morning in the hall in Daniel chapter 4, He does what He will with the powers of heaven and the people of the earth. Who can ask Him, what have you done, and who can stop His hand? No one. That's a rhetorical question. So, here we are faced with why has God's grace appeared and understanding that it is because of His eternal purpose. In uh, Psalm 138.2, it states it also very wonderfully, I will bow down toward your holy temple and will praise your name for your love and your faithfulness. 
For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. It is for God's glory to the praise of His glorious grace over and over again in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 1 through 15 to the praise of God's glory that He has sent His Son. Okay, so if you've been taught over and over again all through your life as I was that you're wonderful and you're a perfect snowflake and you're unique and wonderful and fabulous and God sent His Son just for you, you are the beneficiary of God glorifying Himself in His Son and God being glorified in His Son. If you remember the priestly prayer that Christ prayed in the garden, it's recorded in John chapter 17 where He says, Father, glorify Yourself. Not me. But God, glorify Yourself in Your Son. And so He has done that. It is because of His eternal purpose that God, that grace has appeared in Christ. Having said that, though, we need to move to say what the Bible also equally affirms, and that is that grace has appeared because of man's inescapable problem. Now, what's the problem? What is the inescapable problem? Basically, and truthfully, the inescapable problem is that we are all sinners bound for hell. Each one of us comes into this world a sinner. Each one of us steps into this existence as someone desperately in need of this grace from God. Not only in need of it, but we must have it to live. We must have it to live eternally. There is no other way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That is what Christ spoke in, in John chapter 14 to His disciples as He was talking to Timothy. Okay? There is no other way. And man's problem was inescapable, not only because man is sinful, but because sin has effect. Sin has an effect, has the effect, to create death in us. It creates physical death. It's why we die. It's why we wear out. I'm becoming painfully aware of the fact of the truth of that. I'll be 50 years old in October. And I feel like I'm 90. <laughs> I have no knees. I barely have a back. I wear these. It wears out. And it wears out because of sin. It's not because of abuse, although we can, I think, uh, speed things up sometimes that way. But it's because of sin that we die physically. But it, it more importantly, is because of sin that we die spiritually. And in Ephesians chapter 2, if you get past chapter 1, which is a glorious and wonderful uh, exploration and explanation of what God has done in His Son and the purpose of what He's done, in chapter 2 you begin to find out of Ephesians why it had to be done. And it begins, For you were all dead in transgressions and sins. Dead. Now, I have degrees in biology and chemistry. And I had the wonderful fortune, uh, I, I call it a wonderful fortune. Some of you are going to say, that is so icky. But uh, when I was in college, I had the opportunity uh, uh, to actually work with, uh, in my biological studies, a cadaver. Okay? A human body. Y'all are going, oh, that guy's weird, weird, weird. But I enjoyed that, okay? And I enjoyed it also. I've enjoyed it more and more. Uh, as, I've, as I've gotten to grow in this Word, because I understand what dead is. Okay? 
No amount of cajoling, no amount of great talk, no amount of beating, screaming, kicking was going to make that guy move. He was dead. And that's where we are in sin. We have no power of our own. We have no ability to move. We, we cannot move toward. We cannot move away. We are dead in transgressions and sins. And that's the inescapable problem. And it's inescapable because we have no power to do anything about it. That is what we are. If you have any doubt about that, you can uh, turn over to, I believe it's Romans, if you want to take a look at it sometime. Uh, I'll try to find it really quickly. Uh, this is kind of a digression, but I believe it's Romans. Uh, yes, it is Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 10. It says, as it is written, uh, and the, the heading in my Bible says, no one is righteous. There is no one righteous, not even one. There's not, no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open, graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to, shift bl- sip, to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. And this is maybe the most condemning one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's us. That's you. That's me. Outside of grace. So our problem was inescapable and God's plan was eternal. He had a purpose. And man had a, had a need. And the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared in the, in the, in the person of Jesus Christ. If that's the uh, salvation grace provides, the instruction grace conveys is that it says in this passage that it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. I like that. I like that a lot. Because what it, it uses some wonderful words there. I spoke about a little bit, a little bit about There's a word called paiduo in, in, in the Greek. It's the word for teach or teaches. Uh, we get a, an English word that's not used very often, pedagogue, out of that, which means a teacher. And pedagogy is teaching. So from that same word, this, this, is, this is a descriptive word in the Greek especially. It's, it's the way that you teach a child, step by step, one thing after another. Any of you who have studied any kind of math at all, and I've, I know that I don't exclude anybody here except for maybe the very youngest, that you build from addition and subtraction to multiplication to division. And some of us got crazy enough to go to calculus and things like that. Okay? But it builds one thing after another, one thing on top of another. And that's what grace does as it teaches us. It teaches us one step, one step, one step at a time. It doesn't, it's not like drinking from a fire hose. Okay, where you just open up the knob and it just comes flying at you all at once. God takes you step by step by His grace and teaches you. He teaches you, first of all, negatively to say no. To say no to what? Well, it's described it here as ungodliness and worldly passions. If you need uh, any reference to as to what that is, uh, ungodliness in 1 John 2, 15 and 16, there's, a, there's kind of a description of of some of those, uh, of those things. Uh, and also this phrase here, ungodliness and worldly passion, is a unique uh, build of a phrase because ungodliness is described here by worldly passions. 
And in, in, in uh, 1 John, it says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. This is verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, and here's the list, the craving of sinful man, the, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. Worldliness. It's a phrase that many of us have, have been familiar with for a while. Some of us may be less familiar with it than others, depending on, about, on our time and temperance uh, in, the, in, in the church and on whether you had a church that was willing to teach about ungodliness or whether you had a different kind of church. Uh, ungodliness, and, uh, uh, described here as worldly passions, is these things. It's things that fulfill desires in the here and now, in our, in our, in our current time-space capsule. Okay, it's, 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 it's like... Uh, the idea of, uh, some of us might know the phrase, instant gratification. Okay, That's what this worldliness is, and that's what we're to say no to. And my question to you is rhetorical, don't answer it, but how are you doing? Uh, how are we to respond to ungodliness when it comes our way? How are we supposed to react? We can find a good, and, and I love to study this, and if you, ever stu- if you study the book of Titus on your own, don't leave out... Um, uh, the book, the two writings to Timothy, because they are so concurrent to one another. Actually, chronologically, First Timothy was written first, then Titus was written, then Second Timothy was written. Okay, and it's to two young pastors, two young men who are supposed to be leading. And in chapter two of Second Timothy, in verse twenty-two, he says, "Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart." So what's the instruction given there toward ungodliness? What are we supposed to do? The evil desires of youth as it's described here. And I know there are a lot of those. We're to flee. We're to run away. We're to get out. We're not to, not to, not to see how close we can get to it. We're not to push as close as we can and t- test as much as of, of it as we think we can stand. All right. We in our in our in the evangelical world have become a little bit backward, I think, in the relationship to how we're supposed to treat sin and Satan. The Bible teaches us that we're supposed to treat sin in this way. Okay? Flee temptation, right? And it says resist the devil. We've turned it around, we resist temptation as hard as we can, and we flee from the devil. Okay? And we can't afford to keep doing that because the instruction given here in, in this passage and in other passages is that temptation is something that we're supposed to run away from. This is not something, and young people listen closely to me, there is no dabbling, there is no testing the waters, there is no learn by experience when it comes to sin. There is none. Because sin is pervasive. If you don't know what that word means, look it up. Okay? It leavens the whole lump and it will kill you. All right? That's my soapbox for the day. We're also to have the ability to say yes. To say yes to three things. To say to 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 be able to exhibit self-control. In relationship to ourselves, self-control. In uh, the earlier parts of Titus chapter 2, and I like to point this out, again, all you young men, there are lots of you that are young men, I would call young men, 
again, that I'm getting ready to turn 50. Many of you I would call young men, but, but uh, uh, younger men even, just as young as you want to go, take this to heart. The instruction given to young men in Titus chapter 2 is singular. It says, control yourself. Now that's not easy for us to do. It's not easy for me to do at 50. But I, I, I know that at 20, it was even harder. And at 25, it wasn't that much easier than it was at 20 or at 18 or 15. Okay. Self-control is paramount in the life of a Christian man and a Christian person, no matter what. And grace teaches us to live self-controlled, not world-controlled, not, not experientially, not in, 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 a, in a whimsical way with no view to the end in sight. We walk as the Word says, in a manner worthy of the calling. We do as Paul describes when he says, I strive to lay hold of what laid hold of me. Okay, We strive to be in a walk because the days are evil. We know that those things are true. Those, that's what the Bible says. And so we walk self-controlled. Two, Self-controlled, upright. Upright. That's not a really common word. I, I had, well, has, haven't found it very often unless we just, we're talking about taking something that has fallen over and turning it upright. To live upright is a relationship that we have with one another. Self-control is our relationship to ourselves. Okay, It's how we're supposed to be in ourselves. Uprightness is our relationship to one another. It's righteousness. It's fairness. It's, 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 it's uh, right dealings. A characteristic of grace is that it teaches us to live rightly with one another. The third char- characteristic of grace and what it teaches us in, is in relationship to God, and that's godliness. It is reverence, respect, piety, and an, and, and, and an acknowledgement of God and who He is and what He d- has done and is doing in our lives. That's godliness. The, that's, and it is opposite of the ungodliness. Okay? It is not seeking the world. It is seeking God. I was talking to a, to a couple this morning uh, who are going through a time right now uh, of, uh, of looking for jobs. Job hunting is horrible. Just horrible. And it's, it's very, very difficult and uh, we began to speak a little bit about uh, including and incorporating. And those two words, uh, in, in most, most cases I think about this, and uh, I don't, don't guess that we would have two words unless we needed two words. And so those two can't mean the same thing, although that we think about them a lot of times as the same thing, to include and to incorporate. But those aren't the same things. I'm not talking about uh, in, in, the, in the area of godliness that we include God. But we incorporate God. To incorporate uh, any of you ladies who may have ever made a cake. Or any of you guys who ever made a cake. I'm not going to exclude guys that they couldn't make a cake. But you incorporate things, right? It tells you to, instructs you to incorporate. Incorporate the eggs. Incorporate the milk. Incorporate. It means to put it together so you can't tell one thing from another. So you don't see the little yellow deal floating around. Okay? That's to incorporate. 
And that is what godliness is. It incorporates God into every aspect of our lives, in every decision that we make, in every action that we take, in every relationship that we have. Every one. It's, God, is this what you want me to do? Is this car the one you want me to buy? Is this house the one you want me to buy? Is this where you want my kids to go to school? Is this what you want me to do with my life? We incorporate God. We don't just include. We don't just say, come along and give me some help when I really need it. But we do live our lives a lot that way. We do live our lives outside of the thought of God until we're desperate. And then we say, and it's wonderful. Oh, Lord, save us. And He does. Because He's faithful and gracious. And it is by His grace that we can learn to be godly. That we can, that we can know how to not just include, but incorporate Him into our lives. And so, that is what godliness is. That's the characteristic of it. Um, one thing, just so we don't just glance over it in this uh, one verse... Uh, it ends with a phrase, in this present age. And that's very, very important as we go forward and look at the very next verse, which we will look at for about the next ten minutes. Um, Paul was dealing with the here and now. That's what Christianity deals with, is the here and now, the today. Christianity is about husbands, you, you and your relationship to your wife, Right now. Youth, your relationships, boyfriends, girlfriends, other friends. Right now, this minute, today. It is entirely possible to have, and I love this phrase, uh, to have a paralyzing preoccupation with posterity. It's important for us to remind ourselves that we live lives that are radically different right now. You heard it this earlier in, in the reading of 2 Corinthians in chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. It's not coming, it has come. We're new. We're brand new. We're made new. We're made alive. And that life is not our own. Do you remember what we read in that passage? To, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them and was raised again. That's whom we live for. That's why we're alive. It's by the grace of God, by the action of Christ and obedience on the cross, and we are raised in His likeness. We are to be like Him. This minute, this day, this hour. The new is not coming. It's here. So if that is prerequisite, and that is all prerequisite, okay, there's an anticipation that grace creates. It says that all of this is going on, all of this that's happening, the salvation, the, the, the teaching, the pedagogy of the Holy Spirit, as it teaches us to say no to the things we're supposed to say no to and, and, and say yes to the things that please God. All this is happening, it says, while we wait. While we wait. While we wait for what? While we wait for the blessed hope 
the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The glorious appearing. Verse 13 actually provides the dynamic for what all that Paul has said before. Not only does the believer look back, like verse 11, to the appearing of Jesus, but we look forward to the reappearing of Jesus. We look forward because we know, again, in John 14, verses 1 through 3, as Jesus spoke to his disciples and he said, In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again. And in that moment, he was speaking as clearly as he could to his disciples and telling them this great theme that runs through the New Testament that we look forward to the day that Jesus, the King, will return. Not like this time in, 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 in shame and ignominy in Bethlehem as a child born in a manger, but, with a, but in the manner foretold by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah twenty seven thirteen, and in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty two with a trumpet blast, with a great voice, and with a sound of power. Okay, we know that, that, that He will come in great glory, it, and all will see Him. And the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, be raised indestructible. And that's what we look forward to. That's our hope. There are four things about this hope that make it so important. First of all, God is its author. Romans 5.13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God is the author of that hope. He is the author and finisher of our faith. And our faith finishes in hope. And my dear friends, let us reiterate over and over and over again. Because I, I, I love the passage in First Peter where he says, I do not think it wrong to, to keep saying these things to you over and over again. So that when I am gone, you will still remember them. Remember that hope in the Bible is not some, some fly-by-night nefarious uh, ethereal idea. It's not, I hope. Hope is assured. Because that hope is in the one who brought assurance. It is that that hope is in the God who created the universe and in His Son, Jesus Christ, who came and died and was raised again. That's where our hope lies. Our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is not, I hope that I can make it good enough. Uh, I hope that I can do enough good things to outweigh the balance on the other side. I hope that, that, that by some possible way that, uh, that uh, the world and all its doctors will find some way to keep people alive forever. That's a crazy hope. Who would ever want to live forever? Okay. But the hope is in Jesus Christ and the work, effective work on the cross. I love that. What is that phrase, Scott, that we sang in that last song? By the cross... By, by the cross, you are all those things you are. By the cross, you are the light, you are the truth, you are the way. By the cross, you are. And by that cross, we have this hope. It is authored by God. Number two, the Scriptures minister hope to our hearts. That's why hope is so important. Still in Romans 15, in verse 4, in the latter part of verse 4, it says, So that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. It is this that can teach us about the one who brings hope. And that is why this is so important. And that's why this is paramount. This word, not this book. This book is about to fall apart. Don't look at the book. It's the words in the book. 
Because the living word came in flesh and brought us that hope. And, and the scripture that he left for us, inspired by God, infallible word of God, ministers hope to our hearts. Third thing, hope is a wonder, has a wonderful, wonderful object. And that object is eternal life. Titus 3, 7, jumping just a little bit ahead, says, So that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. And again, this is not a hope uh, as in I hope or I wish or I want. This is a hope that is secure in the person of Jesus Christ, in the grace of God, in the power that raised Christ from the dead, and that power being the same power that raised you from the dead. If you are in Christ. So this is not just some, some uh, uh, wish. This is an assurance. This is eternal life. Fourth, hope has precious effects. Lives marked by hope have three characteristics. First Thessalonians. If you want to turn there. First Thessalonians chapter 1. I can even find it. First Thessalonians chapter one says, Where is that? I know. First Thessalonians chapter one. In verse three says we continually remember before remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith your labor prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ one of the effects of hope is endurance endurance for what endurance for what purpose endurance for the race We've seen races all through the week if you've watched any of the Olympics. Some of them took a lot of endurance. I can re- the picture that comes to my mind is the American woman finishing the marathon. Running with a limp. But running. And finishing. Enduring. Enduring the pain. Enduring the, 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 the sweat. The exhaustion. That's what endurance is. And that's what endurance is in the spiritual life too. Because God says of Himself, He says He, he, he chastises or disciplines every child that is His. And if there is no discipline, then you're an illegitimate child. None of us as children, most of us can remember sometime when we were chastised or disciplined. Some more recently than others. But we know that, that in, in this... Hope is, is generated and this hope creates endurance. The second thing that it generates is boldness. Second Corinthians chapter 3 and in verse 12 it says this, Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. That boldness. Boldness about what? Boldness for what reason? Boldness 
to stand and speak the word of God. Boldness to stand and look in front of, in, at our neighbors, those who sit in the cubicle beside us, those who we run into at the grocery store, those who we sit beside in the theater, those that we drive to work with every day or ride to work with every day and look at them and say, here is the gospel. Here is what Christ did on the cross. Here is the action taken by God in grace. And here is, here is the claim of God on your life. A boldness to stand for God. As we read earlier, again, back in, in the passage in 2 Corinthians. So now we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ this way, we do so, so no longer. If anyone is Christ, he's a new creature. All this is from God who reconciled himself to us and gave us a ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We are ambassadors for Christ and we must be bold. The third thing that this hope generates is purity. 1 John 3, 3 says that if you have this hope, you will be pure. Purity is a very difficult thing, especially in our age. We say that it's difficult in our age. I don't think the ages, ages have changed all that much. I think it was probably difficult and has always been difficult for man to remain pure. Purity is something that we don't often think of except for in the products that we eat and the things we rub on ourselves and things like that. Uh, but uh, purity in the, in the walk, in the following heart after Christ, s- simply put, is that it is, it is preemptive and primary and passionate. We are that in our walk. That's Purity. This is true in undefiled religion, Christ said. Okay? To help those in need and to keep oneself unstained by the world. That's purity. That's what 1 John talks about. And when it listed those things that are of the world and they are not from the Father, we are to pursue the things of the Father, things in heaven. If your life today is marked by hope, you will endure despite the circumstances. You'll be bold no matter how the challenge and your life will be pure. That's why he uses the word a blessed hope. The word is actually uh, the Greek word for happy. Uh, And in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and through 18, he says, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of the men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again. So we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. That's what we believe. That's what we teach our children. That's what we affirm in our faith is that Christ has died and He was, rose, was raised by the same power that raised us from the dead spiritually and that He will come again and He will take us back. We will be in Him. Uh, one in 25 verses in the New Testament has to do with the hope of the return of Jesus Christ, but the Old Testament doesn't leave it out either. In Zechariah 9.16, it says, The Lord their God will save them on that day as the flock of His people. They will sparkle in His land like jewels in a crown. Now, I don't know about you, but I look at myself this morning and I ask myself this question. 
after uh, let's just look back this week as I look at all the ways I've failed and all the ways I've stumbled and all the aspirations that I had to do good and to be good and to do the right thing and be the right thing and how I fell apart on all those. How could I ever be, how could it ever be that I could end my days and spend eternity shining like a jewel in the crown of Christ? How could this man ever be that way? And the answer is in one word. And that word is the word grace. It is grace that places us in the hand of Christ where we will never be lost. And it is grace that places us in the, as jewels in the crown of Christ to shine through the heavens for eternity. Only by grace. Paul emphasizes the truth of Christ's return all through his pastoral epistles. And in 1 Timothy 6.14 he says, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord and Jesus, Savior Jesus Christ. In 2 Timothy, he writes in the same way, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and in his kingdom, I give you this charge. And in, in verse 8 of, of 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, all, he speaks of, of all who have longed for Christ's appearing. Grace is what creates in our hearts this longing, this hope for the return of Christ. Grace makes us able to wait. Grace prevents us from believing that this is all we have. It's grace that creates the notion that there is a not yet dimension in our lives. Now, this is my second soapbox. I think that one of the reasons that contemporary Christianity is so occupied and preoccupied, almost to a voyeuristic level, with political structures... And earth matters is not because we recognize that the earth is the fullness, is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and that we should be good stewards. And it's not because we need to take our place as good citizens in our society, but it's because we have lost the sight of the fact that there is this not yet dimension to our lives. We are not staying here. This is temporary accommodation. I don't plan to stay here. I don't know about you. But... And I'm not talking about Greenville, okay? But this is as good a place as any as I can think of to create that in my mind, okay? But this is not my home. The world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Any of you who are older Baptists and older even than I am, you'll know that that comes from a hymn. I am waiting for the dawning of that bright and blessed day when the darksome night of sorrow will have vanished far away when forever with my Savior, far beyond this veil of tears, I will swell the song of worship. Through the everlasting years. We are not staying here. Some of you will know the hymn. When the trumpet of the Lord will sound. And time will be no more. Right? And glory breaks eternal bright and fair. When the saved of earth will gather. Over on the other shore. When the roll is called to thunder. I'll be there. Not here. This is not our place. That's our hope. That's what grace does. It not only saves us, it not only teaches us to say no and yes, but puts in our hearts the aspiration for that which is not yet here, but is assured to be. There is a day when He's coming back. But there's also something to consider when He comes back. And that is being ready. That's being prepared for His return. Uh... Parables. Jesus taught him parables. And in one parable he talks about the uh, uh, bridegroom and having your lamps lit and oil in them and have everything ready. We used to sing a song, uh, keep the oil in my lamp, keep it burning, keep, 
keep the oil in my lamp, I pray. Uh, I can't remember even. It was, I was so little. But that's the thing. Father, give me oil in my lamp. Keep it burning. Give me oil in my lamp, I pray. Give me oil in my lamp. Keep it burning. Keep it burning till the break of day. And the break of day is the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. That's when day breaks. That's when the trumpet of the Lord will sound. And time will be no more. And we will be with Him. But will we be ready? If this hope does not reside in your heart, then I press to your mind that there may be self-examination in your future. For this hope, this assurance, is a sign of the work of grace in you. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. Um, I pray that you would take the, 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 the voice of a mere man, empower it with your spirit, and press it to our hearts. Father, our hope is in you. You are our hope. You are grace. Your Son, you've sent as a manifestation of that grace. And as He has appeared, and as grace teaches us, let us learn the lessons that grace teaches us in saying no and saying yes. In living righteously before one another, righteously toward one another, with godliness, self-controlled. And let us, let us wait for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. We thank you that, that uh, this is one of the things that makes what we believe so, so, so unique is that not only did the, the focus, the central person of, of, in, in whom we believe die, but he rose again by your power. And that by grace we are saved and by grace we do what we do and by grace we are bold and by grace we are, we are, we are triumphant over sin and by grace we are triumphant over death because your son did it first. Father, I pray that you will uh, again press home to our hearts that this hope must be real in us and that grace must be in, at work in each of us, transforming us, renewing us, making us your very own. We pray in your name that you will, that you will press these things to our hearts. Amen.